The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 13. Um, and you guys can follow along on the Bibles under your seats or just follow along from up there. Timothy's encouraging report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. I'm used to seeing people uh, doze off in the middle of a sermon. If you guys see me doze off in the middle of my own sermon, uh, it's because I got back late last night from a trip, there's a, a group of guys, uh, we've been friends for, I don't know, about 13, 14 years or so, and we, we were friends with each other during a real kind of critical time in each other's lives uh, as we're figuring out what it means to be uh, a young man or a man uh, who loves Jesus and what, is, what do we know, what do we believe, and what should our life look like, and uh, so we're, we're kind of all scattered across the southeast now, and uh, we're, we're busy, so every, every now and then, whenever we can, uh, we'll, we'll get together, and so the last time we did was about two years ago, and uh, the, now we got together this past weekend in Black Mountain, which is outside Asheville. It was probably kind of funny uh, if you saw it, because uh, <laughs> so... This group of guys are, there's a, there's a Bible teacher at a Christian school, there's a copywriter at an ad agency, there's an engineer, there's a uh, vicar at an Anglican church, and an architect and myself. So, you know, tough guys. And uh, we, we had a, one of the guys had a, a buddy that lived near that area, and we we're asking, hey, we want to go, you know, you know, we want to go outdoors and do outdoorsy things. And uh, he said, well, there's a, a short, easy hike that you guys, and we should have like, at this point, we should have checked this guy's credentials because come to find out later on, this guy has nearly hiked the whole entire Appalachian Trail, but we did not know that. So he said an easy, short trail. He said at first, a half a mile total. Uh, when we show up at the trail, it's actually a half a mile to the top. And uh we were still felt pretty confident because it said intermediate trail, um, but in a 23-degree uh, incline, and we thought, hey, we got this, and we started on the trail going up this to lookout mountain or lookout point or whatever. I'll be honest with you, I don't really know all the details because I was starting to black out about halfway up. Um, we, we start going up, and, and we realize we are 
we are not at an intermediate level, and I, that is the longest half mile. I think whoever, whoever measured the distance of the trail and the incline uh, is not very good at geometry. I, 23%, you know, it's like, like, it was more like this. And, and as the story, as more I tell the story, the, probably the steeper the incline will get. But, but, but seriously, like, it was, it was like this all the way until you got close to the top. And I was already, quite frankly, like, you know, like a girl at this point, like, well, not like a girl, like there were actually girls passing us. Actually, so, so this, no, no offense, girls, like, I'm just like, we're feeling like macho until, until like, and this is no lie, two ladies pass us carrying a papoose with an infant in there, in the front, and pass us going on the way up. There was one point where actually, but we had to like crawl up like actual stone wall. But I digress. Anyway, we made it to the top and the thing that you have to say is it's worth it. I'm not convinced it was, but that's the party line that we all said to each other as we were going on the way down. We said, hey, it was worth it. I'm glad we did it. But so the, one of the cool things about this group of guys is that you know, we've known each other over time now. And as we were sitting on this porch overlooking the mountains in the evening, kind of resting our weary bones and talking and, and just relaxing. We were talking about life. And it's interesting how conversations change. So this group of guys, we knew each other 13, 14 years ago. So the things that we would have been talking about then, the conversation consisted of uh, mortgages. It consisted of diapers. It consisted of a dude had just bought a minivan the day before. It consisted of, uh, we were talking about how do you how do you feed your child? How do you stop your child from whining? Like, like this was the conversations that we were having now. Life changes, but the, the thing that happens in this process, and if you're younger, you might not get this yet, but something happens when you have a child that changes life. Because up until the point that you have this child, like your life, your thoughts is, are all wrapped around your hopes, your dreams, your education, your plan, your job, your happiness. Like, and that's understandable. You're, particularly when you're younger, you guys in CO, like on project, like you're figuring out what life looks like for you right now. That's what your life is wrapped up in. So, but something happens when you have a baby where a conversation that before would have been either uninteresting or incredibly boring before. People talk talking about their child taking their first step or uh, you know, going out and looking for baby clothes, which before would have just been just agonizingly boring before, all of a sudden becomes interesting. And the reason that happens, just trust me if you're not there yet, the reason that happens is that little, that little bundle, that little package that Candace is holding, that little that little, that little runt of mine, that five-year-old boy who runs around and is sometimes fun, sometimes cool, sometimes gross, and sometimes annoying, all wrapped up into one, that little thing running around on those stubby legs, he is carrying around on those stubby legs, on those little hobbit feet. He's, he's carrying on those feet my hopes and dreams. My hopes, my dreams, my happiness all of those things are now being carried by that little runt. My eight-year-old daughter and all of her beauty and all of her geekiness and all of her sometimes like the little special world that she lives in, she is floating around on clouds in her world. She's floating around in those clouds carrying my hopes and dreams, carrying my happiness and my joy. My happiness and my joy, my despair and sorrow are all wrapped up somehow 
into those little kids' happiness and joy and sorrow themselves. I live and die by their joy and happiness. And Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica that he founded, he came to the city. No one was a believer in Christ before that. He came and he preached the gospel for three weeks. He came and preached the gospel and people who had not known who Jesus Christ was became believers in Christ. They were born again from darkness into light. And he had to leave in the middle of the night and as he sends Timothy back to them to check on them, see how are they doing in their faith? And Timothy comes back in this section and he, he says, Timothy has come to us and has brought back the good news of your faith. In, chapter, in verse six of chapter three, he says that, that Timothy has brought back the good news of your faith to him. He says in verse eight, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Already so far in this book, familial language is everywhere in this book. Paul has called the believers at Thessalonica, he's called them brothers. He's called them siblings. He's referred to them, he says, I feel about you like a, not only like a mother to her child, but like a nursing mother in a very tender, caring way, like a nursing mother to her child. He says that he loves them like a father. Already in this letter, he has said that. And the ending of the chapter four, that, and the ending of chapter two, he says that I was torn away from you because he had to leave in the middle of the night because a mob had been put together to basically kind of chase them out. He had to leave in the middle of the night, and he describes that as what happened as being torn away from them. The wording there in the original language has to do with being orphaned. He's saying, I was separated from you as if you were my children, and I was your parent, and you were being orphaned by my leaving you. Whenever he says, it's my desire to come and to see you again, that word desire there, it has the, it's a strong word. It means longing. It means yearning. Really, it's used oftentimes in Greek to be lust. He says, I lust. I long. I yearn to see you again. My love for you is such. I care for you so much. I was there when you became a believer. I was there when you were rescued from darkness to light. I was there when you were born again. I was there when you went from having no father and being an orphan to being adopted by the heavenly father. You are now a child of the king. I was there when that happened. And I long and desire to see that you grow in that. He's saying my, my joy, my life itself, whether I live or die is wrapped up in whether you are standing firm in your faith. Think of how, Think of how if Paul is saying that to the church at Thessalonica who, who he knew for like a month or a little less than a month, if he feels that way about them, where he feels like a mother, a father, a brother, he feels like he's been orphaned from them because he's been separated from them, he lusts and longs to see them again. Think of how if you are a believer in Christ, think of how your heavenly father feels about you and thinks about you. I think you and I, well, maybe I don't want to speak for you. I think most believers, particularly today in America, I think we take our faith very casually. Whether I'm 
standing fast in the Lord, whether I'm growing in him, I think we take it very casually, like it's sort of a a hobby that's something added on to who I am. But Paul is saying it is life or death to you, and because it's life or death to you, it is life or death to him, and how deep must the Father feel about you, whether you are continuing and being steadfast in the faith, and whether you're growing in the faith. It's a serious, heavy thing, whether we are taking advantage of the position that you and I have been placed in. If you are a child of God today, if you're a believer in Christ, you have been adopted by the king. We get to call Jesus our older brother. You are in a place of great privilege. And I know I, I can't speak for you. I know I take that for granted all the time. And I don't take full advantage of the position of privilege that I have been afforded by being adopted into the family of God and to be made a child of the king. Paul says, I live if you are standing fast in the Lord. In verse 10, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He's saying, I long to come make sure, do everything I possibly can to make sure that you are growing in your faith. And I wonder if you and I are even doing that ourselves. Are we taking an advantage? Are we making sure that we are growing in the faith? And then in verses 11, 12, and 13, He lays out what does it mean to be growing in the faith? What does it mean to be growing in the faith? How do we know whether we are growing as believers or not? How do you tell? Like, I I think we all like to, we like to know like kind of where we stand, what, how am I doing? Uh, we need a sort of scorecard with how I'm doing. Guys like that. Guys, maybe ladies too, too. I don't, I don't really, can't speak for you, but I know guys like to know where they stand. They like to know where they stand with each other. And they like to know, like, we like to rank things. Like, we like, when guys just get in a car and start driving, we like to rank, like, name top 10 quarterbacks of all the time. Who's the top five safeties right now that are playing? Who do you think is number one? Like, like we like to rank things, like, know where people, where things stand, where people stand. How do you know whether you're growing the faith? What is your own mental checklist on whether you are standing fast and you're growing in the faith? So is it like, okay, I am, you know, all the classic things. I am reading the Bible daily. You're close to daily. I'm, if I'm under this amount of time or I'm reading under this chapters, I'm not really growing up over this chapters than I am. I'm going to church. I'm volunteering. I'm uh, a part of this ministry. I'm not doing these things. I'm not looking at porn. I'm not gossiping. I'm not, uh, whatever it is, your own checklist that you have, the things that you are doing and the things that you are doing, that we kind of feel like, or if I'm, I'm doing these things and I'm not doing these things, all right, I'm growing the faith, I'm standing fast, I'm standing firm. What Paul's idea of standing fast and growing the faith is very different. We're gonna run through this very quickly in this section. He gives us at least three concepts of how we know that we are growing in the faith, but it's all centered around One big idea. Look at verse 12. 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You know what Paul said, and even he was echoing what Jesus said, is the the true measuring stick of whether we're growing in the faith or not, whether we're standing fast, it's our love for one another. It's not how much you know, though we should be growing in knowledge. It's not your Bible memorization. It's not your perfect attendance at church or community group. The concept, the idea, the question of whether you are growing your faith whether you're standing fast and standing firm revolves around, are you growing in your love for others? So what does Paul tell us in this prayer about love? He tells us love is a miracle. He tells us love grows. And he tells us love is the measure of growth. Look at verse 12 again. He starts off, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. First of all, we have to ask the question, what is love, right? Because love is one of those things where when we all come into a room and somebody mentions the word love, or he says love one another, we all picture something different. According to what your background is, according to what your cultural background is, according to kind of how you're put on the hook. Like, we all define love differently. Sort of like if we all, like, if I say the word barbecue, we all define what barbecue is differently. There are some people who think barbecue is beef brisket with a, like, a a heavy syrupy tomato-based sauce on it. Some people, when I say barbecue, you think like just grilling burgers around a grill if you're like from the Midwest and God help you. Some of you you picture like uh, pulled pork and you're getting closer to the idea. Some some of you picture like a honey mustard sauce on it and you're apostate, you're way off on, but but that's what you picture. Some of you picture like a vinegar base and some of you picture a vinegar base with a little bit of a, a tomato sauce in it. And there's a big difference between those two, even though it seems pretty close. We all picture something different. In that same way, when I mentioned the word love, we all picture something different. But what's the biblical definition of love? Well, first of all, we know that love is not an emotional response. Most of our society and most of us would describe love as a emotional, emotional, a emotional, and or an emotional response to somebody else. Somebody else is, I see somebody and they're attractive or they're nice to me or I like them. I find some affinity between me and them. Uh, they, they express interest in my life. They do something for me and therefore I like them. And over time, that grows into love. Love is an emotional response. I feel an emotional to re- response to this person because I look at them and it makes me weak in the knees or I am around them and they do nice things to me. And so I respond to something that they give me, whether it's their beauty or their attention, I respond emotionally to them. And so if that's your definition of love, then 
Whenever that person quits giving you what caused your response, then love can be over. When your, your beauty or your physique no longer makes me weak in the knees, then I don't, ha- I don't love you anymore. There's no longer an emotional response. When you aren't doing what I need you to do that made me feel the way I felt, then I no longer have to love you more. I'm out of love with you. But love, the idea in scripture is that love is not an emotional response. When God talks about his love for us, it's no response to us for something amazing that you give him. You don't, God loves you, but you don't make God weak in the knees. God doesn't get something from you that he has to respond back emotionally to you. And so whenever you quit giving him what he needs, he quits loving you. The idea throughout scripture is a, whenever you see the word like a a covenantal love or an everlasting love, that God loves you with an everlasting love, the idea there is that God has placed love upon you by a decision on his part that isn't based in any way upon something that you give to him. Now that may make you feel kind of uncomfortable and like, like, like I don't really know about that at first, but think about it. How secure should you feel in a love that's not based upon what you bring to the table? If he says, I love you, I remember one time when Megan asked me, and it probably wasn't a great response, we were dating or getting close to marriage, I feel, and Megan one day asked me, like, tell me, why do you love me? And I don't think I made the right response, but my response was, I love you because I love you. And she like looked me back, and it wasn't a great response. I know what she was asking me now. I would give a better answer today. But what I, was, what I was saying to her was, I love you whether you look as beautiful and she does look hotter and more beautiful today than she did at that time. But whether you look as beautiful today or things start to droop and sag and colors start to change and things start to not be the way that they were when I first met you or uh, whether you do things that I want you to do back in return, whether you are doing those things or not, my love is fixed upon you. I love you because I love you. I love you because you're Megan, not because because anything that you bring to the table, all the stuff that you bring to the table, and she brings a lot to the table, all that you bring to the table is beautiful and amazing candy on top. It is sprinkles on top of the ice cream sundae, but I love you because I love you. And to a million times by that, God loves you. If you're a believer in Christ, he loves you because he loves you not because of what you give to him. That's the definition of love. Love is not reciprocal. It's not, it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not an exchange. Uh, sometimes I find Christmas to be kind of, a, and even birthdays, now that I'm an adult, to be an interest. Like when you're a kid, like you just get stuff for Christmas, you're not bringing anything to the table. You just get stuff for your birthday, you don't bring anything to the, anything to the table. But we have classifications of friendships and relationships. Like we know like, hey, whether it's, you know, in your world, this friendship is a $20 birthday gift, Right? Or this friendship is a $40 birthday gift. And so at Dale's birthday, I give him a gift that's worth X amount of dollars. And then at my birthday, Dale reciprocates and gives me a birthday gift that's worth X amount of dollars. And in my like very rational line of thinking, I just think, let's just cut out the middleman and let's just call it even. Like, like we would do uh, Christmas exchanges in, in my family and uh, 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 James and I, he's my brother-in-law, if you don't know, James and I would have each other's names because we're the two guys. And um, we would, like, I think the, the amount was like $40. And so like two or three Christmases in a row, we literally bought $40 gift cards and exchanged them to each other. And one year we looked at each other and said, like, this is kind of a waste of time. Let's just call it even. And I've got the $40. Thank you and Merry Christmas, James. 
But God's love to you is not reciprocal. He's not keeping count of whether your love to him is at a $40 level or a $20 level. He's not paying attention to whether you mailed it in this year or you've really just been banging it out towards him, that you are just really pumping out love and affection and service to him. His love to you is not based upon any reciprocation on your, on your part. And the idea of biblical love is a non-reciprocal love. The idea of biblical love is that it intentionally humbles itself for the flourishing of another. This is really where you're getting that sort of parental kind of love where you love somebody else enough that your love for them is bound up in seeking and humbling yourself for the flourishing of somebody else. I, on Saturday morning, it's the one day I get to sleep in late. And whenever I hear Landon and Sophia arguing in the other room at six by Joseph 30 in the morning because they're bored or they're hungry or whatever is going on in there, I do not want to get out of bed and go serve them breakfast or turn on the TV or hang out with them or play with them, but I do so because I'm seeking their flourishing and not my own flourishing. And when Jesus gathers with his disciples around the table and he puts on an apron and he goes around the table in the role of a servant and he washes their feet, he is seeking their flourishing and not his own. Whenever he went to the cross for you, he was seeking your flourishing, not his own. Love intentionally humbles itself for the flourishing of another and it serves without counting. We most often keep count in our relationships I will pour out, like we view it sort of bank accounts. Like you've been X amount nice to me. And so let's say you've been, let's just assign points. You've been 10 points nice to me. So whenever you're not nice to me, I will be nice to you and I'm pulling out of your accounts. Whenever your account hits zero, you do not have protection. All of a sudden the gloves are off and I'm gonna give you what you have coming to you. And the idea of love is that in the biblical love, God's love, is it serves without counting. This kind of love is the longing of our souls. Don't you long to be in a relationship with a person or people who will love you in that way? Doesn't somewhere deep in your soul, don't you wish that life looked like that with a circle of people around you that loved each other without counting, that intentionally humbled themselves, that's not reciprocal, that wasn't based upon emotional response, that is the longing of our souls and the reason that's the longing of our souls, there's really no explanation to why we would long for that kind of love. Why do we see a child who is unloved and left behind and we think that's a travesty? It's because we know that the human soul requires that kind of love to really flourish. 
and we long for that. Do you know why we long for that? Do you know why you long for that? Because you were created with the imprint of the image of God upon your soul and he, by definition, is love. It is the very nature and the very character of God. God isn't loving because we have come up with a definition of love and said, yes, God checks all those boxes and therefore God is loving. We have seen the nature and character of God and he determines the definition of love. And we know that he is love because it is greatest demonstrated in Jesus. He came and he served the people who were around him. He washed their feet. But then he said, greater love has no man than what? This, that he gives his life for his friends. And that's the kind of love that he loved you and I with. And that's the definition of love, quite frankly, that Paul is talking about in this passage when he's praying that they would, and that you and I would increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And here's the thing, that's impossible to do. So I'm gonna let you off the hook and me off the hook right now. Like even though he's praying that that would be the, the love that, that that we would be abounding and growing in, that is impossible for you and I to do. There is no possible way that you can pour out to others without counting, uh, humbling yourself, with, regardless of whether they reciprocate or not, and not based upon an emotional response. Unless and until our Hearts are continually and growingly captivated by a picture and appreciation and affection for the sacrifice that Jesus gave, made for you and I on our behalf until we see and experience and know in our, not with our minds only, but with our hearts and with our souls until we continually taste and feast at the buffet table of his love for us until we understand that that continual, never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love is the answer for the deepest longing of my soul and everybody else's soul until that captures you and that captures me. It is impossible. But if that captures you and fills up every nook and every cranny of the endless sponge of neediness for love that the human soul, that your human soul, that my human soul is, until that happens, it is impossible. When it does, whenever it fills those nooks and crannies, all of a sudden, we feel something different. We are able, beginning to be enabled to love others out of an overflow of that love. It is empowered by a love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. How can you love one another from a pure heart Earnestly, because we have been born again. Love is a miracle that happens. 
love is a miracle because it's the nature of God and love is a miracle and we see it happen between people, between human beings who are otherwise selfish. It's a miracle because there's a result of God's spirit at work in your heart. And if you and I want to stand fast in the faith, if we want to grow in the faith, if we want to grow in holiness before God, we will grow in love and that will only happen because the Lord makes us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Look at the next section after he says that he make you increase. He says, yeah, make you increase and abound in love. Love is not only a miracle, but Paul is telling us that love grows. It's not something that just, like, you are a loving person and boom, it's done. Or you're born again and, oh, now you're a loving person. It's something that grows over time. He's praying that God would make us and make you increase and abound in love. He says that they would, he prays that they would increase in love. He prays that you would increase in love. I pray that you would increase in love, that I would increase in love. Because Christian love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And just like fruit, it's not something that you can make happen. I don't know how many of you guys have ever had like a, uh, I grew up and we had, um, I grew up in the country as I've told you guys before, we had a bunch of pecan trees or pecan trees, depending on whether you're, you know, classy or not, over in our side yard. And in our backyard, we had two pear trees. And there was one pear tree that like about this time of year would just be like overflowing with pears. And this was a bad thing for me because I didn't like pears. And so they were everywhere and they would drop from the tree and then like all these wasps and bees would come. And as a kid, you're trying to like, you're, you're playing, but now you're scared because half the, half the yard is covered by all these wasps and bees and it just grew. There was this other pear tree that we could not do anything. We could not do anything to make it yield pears. It would blossom in like November and get these little pears and they would all fall off because it was something was wrong with that tree. We could not make it bear pears. And you cannot make yourself abound in love for other people. It only happens by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that secret agency that works within you to cause you to grow in love for other people. Christian love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but it's also intentional. Paul prays here that they may, that the Lord would make them increase and abound in love. But in chapter four, he, say, he tells them to be intentional about pursuing love for one another. It should be a goal of our heart and our desire that we would be growing in love for one another. The kind of love that we were talking about, a sacrificial, humble, non-reciprocal love that's based on an overflow because a Christian love is an overflow from what God has done for us to the people around us. Paul prays that they would increase in love as something that has to grow over time, but then Paul prays that they would abound in love. The, the wording here, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I was reading all about this kind of wording here by some people who are Greek scholars, and they said that this word abounding in love is, it has to do with like a scandalous, scandalously extravagant love. A kind of love that is so 
so scandalously extravagant, it's being poured out so great upon people who do not deserve it that people look at you and think that something is wrong with you, that you're being taken advantage of. Because that's the kind of love that God loves you and I with. I don't know about you, I don't know your past. None of the things that I have done, the things that I continue to do, it is scandalous that God would love me. It is scandalous that God would take me in as his child under no conditions. And that's the kind of love that should be overflowing from you and I to each other. And not just to each other, but he also says to all. That means people who aren't even believers. So that means people will be looking in and saying, you are being taken advantage of. Why would you pour out your life like that? Why would you give yourself like that? And there won't be any good explanation except to say, I'm loving them and Christ loved me with a scandalous, never giving up, never ending love. And so that's all I can do is pour that back out to them. That's why Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. It doesn't mean like you just happen to love other people who are like you, other people who you get along with, other people who tickle your fancies, other people who don't annoy you. It means that inside the body of Christ, inside the church, inside this particular church, there will be people that drive you crazy. There'll be people that get under your skin. There'll be people that annoy you. There'll be people that mistreat you and you are called and you and I are called to love them back regardless whether we have any sort of natural infinity or inclination towards it or whether they deserve it or not. Are you praying? Are we praying that we would increase and abound in love? Is that what we are making our prayers? Are we praying to God as Paul prayed for him, obviously for himself, but prayed for this church that he loved so dearly that they would increase and abound in love for one another? Are we making that our prayer? Are we making that our goal? Are we making that the intention of our lives to grow and increase and abound in the unique Christian kind of love? Love is a miracle. Love grows. And love is the measure of our growth or the measure of our maturity. Look at this in verse 13. He's just prayed that they would increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So that, so this is why he's praying that they would increase and abound in love. So that he, that's God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's saying that your holiness, the measure of your holiness, your growth in Holiness is the measure of your love for others. Our growth in holiness is our growth in love for one another. Romans 13, eight through 10, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a, to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is saying there's just one, one scorecard that you need to keep. There's just one scoreboard that you need to be looking at on whether you are growing in the faith, whether you're holding steadfast in the faith. Are you loving others? Because if you are loving others as yourself, out of an overflow of your soul for what Christ has done for you and his continual love that he is pouring out to you, if you are loving others that way, you won't have to worry about whether you're doing all the other things that you should be doing or you aren't doing the things that you shouldn't be doing. That's the one scoreboard to watch. And then he says that the purpose of Christian community is to prepare each other for Jesus' return. I pray that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The way that we know that we are growing in readiness for his return is that we are growing in our love for one another. That's preparing us, our love, the person and the people that annoy you that get under your skin, that you want to mistreat or you want to isolate yourself from because you can't stand them, whether they're a believer or not a believer, those are the people that are preparing you for the return of Christ and causing you to grow in holiness before God. Is this our measure of what it means to grow as a person or as a believer? It works its way out in very practical ways. In the relationships that you are in, do you have a heart, a heart, so this is something I can't score for you. Do you have a heart posture when you're around other people that says, I'm your servant? Not I'm gonna act like your servant so you look at me and you think I'm a good Christian person or you think I'm a little bit holier than you are, but in your very heart posture that says, I'm your servant because I want to love you the way Christ has loved me. And then secondly, what practical ways of serving other people do you see in your life? Do you take practical, small, everyday opportunities to serve other people out of love? So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I need help with something, if Dale comes to me, for example, and asks me to help him move on a Saturday, I would rather say, Dale, here's $100. Let's hire some help. And don't thank me because I'm getting out of this Saturday. Time out of my day, out of my time to do something that I don't wanna do is a much bigger ask for me. But am I taking those opportunities to practically serve the people who are around me, to love them? Because I want, not because I want them to see and think I'm awesome, but because I want them to experience the kind of love that I've been loved by the Father 
and by Jesus Christ. My prayer for us as a church planter here, as a leader in our midst, my prayer is like Paul's, I pray that we would increase and abound in love and extravagant love for one another in our heart posture of humility and in practical ways of service so that we may be presented blameless and holy before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, that other people who look in, who do, may not even believe a single jot about Christianity, may say there's some sort of reality there because of their love for one another. I pray we would grow and abound in love for, for each other because Jesus abounds in extravagant love for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.